So I left my Bible down there. So that was a, not a good transition by me. But let's thank Britton and the band. Um, just a great, great morning being together. Well, what drives you? What fuels you? What wakes you up in the morning and keeps you awake at night? What are you passionate about? Well, chances are if we collectively were teenage girls in the 60s, we would have the same passion. Any idea what that is? The Beatles, of course. I mean, Beatlemania took shape in the early 60s, and by 1963, it skipped across the pond here to America where uh, crowds of tens of thousands would greet the band before they even arrived, and hysterical teenagers would be shouting uncontrollably and fainting at first sight and foaming at the mouth and just throwing themselves like lemmings at John and Paul and Ringo and George. See, nowadays, for us, Beatles are like the oldies, right? But in that, yeah, somebody's with me. Yeah, you're like, you are so old. You brought up the Beatles. That's awesome. But in their time, in their day, and even looking back, one can make the argument that the Beatles were the most influential band in history. Not just their music, but uh, they, they shaped the ideological climate of a generation. And so we know many of us, their music, some of us know their story, but does anyone know the secret of the Beatles' success? Anyone want me to tell you what that is? Well, I've borrowed it, but let, let, me, uh, let me give you an idea. So Malcolm Gladwell, he's an author, he's a business consultant. He takes the Beatles as this incredible example. And he says it's not when they came to America, but it happened before. In the late 50s, they were just kids, and they went to Hamburg, Germany. And they were the house band for a quote-unquote gentleman's club. And it was during this time that day after day, week after week, seven days a week, maybe eight days a week, eight hours a day, they learned what it was like to become a great band. So by the time they came to America with the flocking of thousands of teenage girls, they had played together over 1,200 times. So Gladwell would suggest it wasn't just their musical genius, though they had that. It wasn't just their innovation and the creativity in which they brought to the art form and to arts in general, though it might have included that. It wasn't even the dreamy, heartthrob nature of their boyish good looks. Gladwell suggests that it was the fact that they were willing to play together 1,200 times. So t take a look at this. Here's what he says. So what made the Beatles special? What made them special was that they were willing to play together 1,200 times willing to play eight-hour sets seven nights a week for months at a stretch. Well, why were they willing? Because they believed in the notion of meaningful work. They had an opportunity to throw their heart and mind into something and get something back, and that made all the difference in the world. What made all the difference in the world? What made them special? Gladwell calls it meaningful work. They found purpose. They found meaning. I'm just going to give it one word. The word is passion. They had passion. That's what we're talking about today. And I want to ask again, what drives you? What fuels you? What wakes you up in the morning and keeps you awake at night? What are you passionate about?
So we're in this I Am series where we're on this journey of discovering who God has made us to be. We all have lives that have been given by God. We want to make a difference, whatever that looks like, but so many of us feel lost and we feel helpless. We feel uh, squashed down. We feel like we don't have much to offer. And so this series, uh, we're taking a look at that because we believe that each one of us here has been created by the Master exactly how he wants us to be, to do good works that God wants us to do. And so we've used this image of the arrow. It's an arrow that we, it's an image that we've had at Heartland for a while where we've said we want to be an arrows out people. We want God to use us to make a difference out there. That's what we've said. And so we're trying to unpack a little bit more about what that looks like. And so if you have been journeying with us, you know some of the elements that we're using with this image of the arrow. So the first is the shaft of the arrow. That's the structural piece that holds it all together. And we've said that the thing that that gives structure to our lives and our purpose is understanding God's story and how it relates to our story. Do you remember this? So we find who we are in God's story and the way he intersects our lives uh, with our story. And so that's a powerful place to begin, but that's not all there is to understanding our identity, our passion, our calling, all of the above. It would be just like throwing a stick at a target and hoping it will stick. So we've been bringing some clarity to that. Last week we talked about that God has given us gifts gifts that he wants to use, that he empowers with his spirit to make a difference. And so we've said gifts are like the knock at the end of the arrow. That's the thing that you connect to the string and you pull it back, and that gives power to fly. Today, we're using this image to say, in this arrow, there are these fletchings, these feathers. They're what give it precision to allow the arrow to fly straight. That's where we're focusing on today. And in the next few weeks, we'll talk about the tip, which is the calling, and then the target, what we're after. So does that make sense where we're heading? It doesn't, I guess. Do you want me to re-explain it, or is that good for now? So today, we're talking about passion. And we're picking up the story that we've been sharing from the life of David and hoping to draw things from David's story to our story and ways that that can make a difference for us today. So if you're not familiar with David, David uh, is a great musician. He's better than John Lennon. In our Bible, we have the book of Psalms. That's like the hymn book of the church throughout the ages. David wrote many of those Psalms. You may or may not know that David was also Israel's greatest king. And so he's a really significant person. But before we get there, David starts out as a lowly shepherd boy. And that's where we encounter him in the story. And it's at a time where Israel is in battle. They're at war with a group called the Philistines. And so there's a king, and David's the youngest of seven brothers. His brothers are on the battlefield, and they are just cowering in fear because the Philistines have a champion by the name of Goliath. Has anyone ever heard of Goliath? Goliath is a giant. He stands nine feet tall. And so he comes out and he, and he taunts the nation of Israel saying, who will come and fight me? If you kill me, we'll be subservient to you. But if I kill your champion, you will be slaves to us. And so for six weeks, day after day, this Goliath has come and taunted Israel and mocked the name of Israel's God, Yahweh. What's well, at this point that David is sent by his father 
to the front lines in battle to deliver uh, some food to his brothers and to find out what's going on. And it's here where David hears with his own ears the mocking of this giant, this pagan, this Goliath. And he's incensed. And passion raises up within him. And so last week, we left the story as this was happening. And so David believes that he's the man, though he's a kid, though he's not a trained warrior, this passion comes up in his heart. And he said it like this, when a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do this to the pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the Lord Lord our God. And so he's about to bring his warrior courage onto the battlefield. And he's confident in the Lord. So the Lord who has rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. So we should pause here. Like where does that confidence come from? What for this young shepherd boy inspires such courage and passion? What drives him into the battle where everyone else has fled, crying, help me, help me, help me? And David says, no, in the face of this, I feel fine. Any Beatles fans? You see what I just did there? (laughs) See, here's what's happening. David is confident. He knows who he is and whose he is. He knows that the battle is the Lord's. David is also confident in his giftings. We talked a week or two back about how uh, the king wanted to put his own armor and give David his sword, but those weren't fitting for him. David was his own man. He could only bring the gifts that he had, but he was confident in that. He knew that God had given him power in the past and would do so in the future. And it's David's passion that directs him with precision. I will slay the giant who has defied the name of the Lord my God. So that's where we've been, and today we get to conclude the story of David and Goliath. It's a familiar story for many of us. It's the classic underdog story. It's also one that in our culture most folks are familiar with this idea, but some are not. And last week, we had some people who were like, dude, what happens? What happens in the end of the story? Which I think is so awesome that we're a church that anyone and everyone can come to as they're exploring faith. That's just incredible to me. So here's the end of the story. And we're gonna pick it up from 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a bit long, I'll just read the whole thing for us. It says, David picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into the shepherd's bag. Then, armed only with his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistines. Well, Goliath walked toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. Well, David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, But I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. I mean, David's pretty good at trash-talking himself, isn't he? And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with the sword or spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. Isn't that amazing? David knows who he is and whose he is. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. So as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down to the ground. It's a powerful story, isn't it? It's the classic kind of underdog, the unsung hero, this young, small person against this huge giant. And it's been one that's inspired courage for many throughout the centuries. It's also a story that you may have heard from people like me from the front, just encouraging you like the underdog. It's kind of like the Christian Rudy, like you can do this, um, which is in part true. But Malcolm Gladwell, again, the author and business consultant, has a very interesting take on the David and Goliath story. He wrote a book called David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And so it offers some great business insights on how small startups have advantages that that they can learn to use and conquer some of the industry giants out there. Some really good and helpful stuff and maybe some stuff that isn't great or isn't super helpful. Uh, marketplace book that might be of interest to you. But he also draws on this image and brings a really great biblical perspective as well. And so what he does in the book when he unpacks the story of David and Goliath is he just makes us ask a critical question. Who's the underdog? Who's vulnerable in this story? Because many of us, myself included, have thought, well, clearly it's David. But think about this. Goliath is a giant. He's muscly. He's got a long reach with his sword. And hand-to-hand combat, he's unbeatable. But David has other gifts. David's quick. He's nimble. He's agile. He's confident. He's overcome predators. He's protected the flock, let alone he has God on his side. And David has the ability to outthink, to do something differently, to be unconventional. He has the power of a sling. What we know about Goliath being nine feet is he's bogged down with armor. He's got a huge sword. We're told in the text that he has an, a shield bearer who goes in front of him. Well, one thing we know in modern medicine is that those who are natural giants in our day, sometimes that is a medical condition that keeps the, uh, the, the hormones, the growth hormone, that it just keeps going throughout lifetime. And the side effect often is a difficulty in seeing. So if this is the case, perhaps the shield bearer is also his handler that gets him to the right place. And if someone gets in within five or ten yards, they're a dead man. But out beyond that, Goliath's the one who's vulnerable. He's a big target. And David has the devastating weapon 
of a sling and a stone. Now, I've often thought of the sling and a stone kind of like a little kid has the little slingshot and gets the little stone and bing, you know, it kind of hits off. And maybe you're at worst, you're like, poke an eye out. Or, well, that's not what's happening here. Armies in that day had teams of slingers, and they were devastating. They could throw a rock uh, super fast at 200 feet. The best, people like David, had pinpoint accuracy. And the force that could be wielded from this one little rock is the equivalent to a 45 handgun. Just like that. So who's the underdog in this story? Is it David or is it Goliath? So as Goliath is moving out and David is moving towards him, David doesn't need to get anywhere near. Maybe before Goliath can even see what's going on, he's been pelted with the equivalent of a stone sent from a handgun. Have you ever thought of that before? This is some things that are possible in this story. And I think that's really encouraging because if I look at my life, and maybe you're the same, I feel a lot like little puny David that doesn't have much to offer, and I cower in fear of the giants in my life. Is that true for you? Maybe for you, your giant is a diagnosis or a relational problem or patterns in the past that continue to weigh you down or circumstances outside your control that just leave you pummeled. For others of us, we may look out and this world is full of giants that need to be slayed. Giants like oppression and prejudice in all its forms. Giants like clean water, food insecurity, Giants like all those children in need of a home. Giants like the foster care system or the health care system or the need for education, care and counseling. For some of us, our giants may be fatigue or disillusionment or anxiety or depression. There are some of us who see giants in terms of potential. We long for generosity to be unleashed by followers of Jesus. We know that the world's problems, many of them could be met if Christians just tithed somewhere. It would make all the difference. Others of us see giants of how do we hand off the faith to the next generation? Or how do we go into the places where Jesus is not known and we can be and bring good news there? See, our giant is not a physical, literal, nine-foot guy in armor ready to kill us. But that doesn't mean we don't have giants in our lives. Is that true? So what can we learn from this story, the story of David and Goliath? And in particular, what can we learn about passion? Passions that can help us seize the life we've been given. Use the life we've been given to make a difference for God and to make a difference for our fellow humankind. What can we learn? Well, three ideas that I think we can draw from this passage of Scripture that relates to you and I and our stories today. And the first is this. Gifting connects our life to God's power and passion directs our life with God's precision. 
We all have gifts. We all have things to do that if we are in Christ, he animates those with his spirit. And that's a really good thing. We have gifts. And what we want you to know is that we, as we explore and experience these gifts, God gives us the ability to slay giants in the world. We've been given gifts to do that. But we can get overwhelmed when there are so many big things in our lives and so many big things around us that we just get stuck. So our gifting connects our lives to God's power, but it's our passion that directs our lives with God's precision. Put differently, I firmly believe that God has given you the ability to slay giants in your life because of the gifts he's given. But it's your passion that directs you to know which giant to kill. Does that make sense? There are so many things out there, we can't all do everything, but if we each find our thing and do it, if we can get in touch with our passion, we'll know which giants to fight. So again, I ask you, what drives you? What fuels you? What wakes you up in the morning and keeps you awake at night? What are you passionate about? Because you grow to understand and claim and exercise that. Not only has God given you the ability to slay some giants, but that'll help you to know which giant to fight. Make sense? Second idea about passion that we can draw from David's story. It's this, that passion is a conviction that becomes contagious because it withstands the test of pain. Passion is a conviction that becomes contagious because it can withstand the test of pain. David's been passionate about the worship of God since he was a young boy. He's been passionate about delivering. It starts out with delivering the herds from these predators that that would come. He's overcome obstacles. And he's heard of these armies defying God. His passion has become a conviction or is a conviction that becomes contagious because it withstands the test of pain. And I hope this is a word of encouragement to you because some of us in this room are like, hey, nice teacher guy on stage, that sounds great. Go slay a giant. Well, I've got giants that are like squashing me down. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. And the reality is I don't, but I do know this. God can and will meet us right where we're at. God can, will, and does bring us out of those places. He brings community around us. He can slay the giants in our lives. And when he does, passion wells up. And that passion is a conviction that becomes contagious. Not because we've never gone through pain. Exactly the opposite. Because that passion has withstood the test of pain. Do you know the root word for passion? It's pain. It's suffering. It's enduring. Uh, A writer says it like this. The word passion comes from the Latin root pati, meaning suffering or enduring. Thus, compassion means to suffer with. The compassionate are immune to other people's pain, and passion is, at its core, a form of pain that demands to be quenched. Did you catch that? Passion is a form of pain that demands to be quenched. It's not for the faint of heart or those who lack patience, which is not the ability to wait, but the ability to suffer. 
So on Tuesday nights, we have a companion course to our I Am series on Sunday where about 300 folks are coming and they're, they're getting to, to craft and share their story and they're understanding their giftings. And this week, we'll be unpacking passion even more. And what's been amazing as we've looked back at the story is folks have been able to see, oh, God was faithful there. And so we encourage folks to, to think about their high times and we encourage them to think about their hard times. Well, why would we do that? Those are the moments that shape us, simply put. And the cool thing is it's the high times that we can look back and that gives us confidence that God showed up and he was good then. And so no matter what I'm going through now, he can do the same thing. The high points give us confidence. But what's even more significant, it's the hard times. The hard times give us conviction. Passion is conviction that becomes contagious because it withstands the test of pain. Does that make sense? So I ask you again, what drives you? What are you passionate about? What wakes you up in the morning and keeps you awake at night? Chances are, if you have any inkling of what those are, there's a part in your story. And maybe part of that story at its root had pain and even a deep sense of pain. But that pain became a conviction of a great need in the world that must be quenched. And that gives you the courage to do something about it. You know the tragedy in our world today? is that we regularly confuse our interests with our passions. We regularly confuse things that we're interested in, which aren't bad and of themselves, but the end in mind is sort of our interests fulfill us and our passions, those things that give conviction and purpose beyond ourselves. And it's really, really subtle. So for many of us, we're interested in things like God but we're passionate about golf and gardening. Are those bad things? Not at all. Unless we should be interested in golf and gardening, but passionate about the things of God. Does that make sense? Many of us, we're interested in key quality relationships with our friends or with our family or with those who don't know Jesus. We're interested as long as it's convenient and helpful and doesn't take too much time and fulfills us. We're interested in friends and family and we're passionate about food and fine wine and football. When maybe we should be interested in food and fine wine and football and passionate about the relationships that matter most. Jesus put it this way, when it comes down to, to it, it's all about love, loving God, and loving others. It's called the greatest commandment. He and John Lennon would agree, by the way, that all you need is love. Love, love, love is all you need. Here's the difference, though. And maybe this is just a caricature, but Lennon in that song and in that day had a sense of sort of an easy sort of love. I mean, imagine there's no heaven or hell. Imagine everyone's basically a good person if we could just put petty differences aside and just get along. The world has been trying to do that for millennia 
and we see where it gets us. Jesus had a different approach. Jesus knew there was a heaven and there was a hell. God knew humans weren't basically good, that we had no way to make ourselves right with God nor solve the problems in the world that we've created for ourselves. So what did God do? He sent Jesus into the world as a human to live among us. And he lived and he showed us the way to live. And he encountered all the pain and obstacles. He himself was a man who, who was, uh, experienced grief and pain and suffering like we may never know. Jesus himself took that all the way to the cross, died a painful, brutal death. And he was raised from the dead, and because he was, his spirit was unleashed, and the power of sin, death, and hell were defeated forever. Jesus had a passion. His passion was a conviction that even 2,000 years later is contagious because it withstood the test of pain. Let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with having interests. They're good, and God will often use those to get to really passionate, important things that make a difference for him and for others. David was interested in music, but his greatest passion became that of the glory of Israel's God that he got to display through his harp and through with a sling. David was interested in shepherding the flock, but his deepest passion was to see the rescue of God's people. So convicted with passion, he runs headlong into battle, and he's ready to display God's glory and deliver God's people. And so the passage concludes, as Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistines with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. David used it to kill him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. And get this. Then the men of Israel and Judah gave a great shout of triumph and rushed after the Philistines, chasing them as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. One more thing about passion that we can see in this passage. When passion becomes contagious, it empowers others to live out their God-given passions as well. When passion becomes contagious, it empowers others to live out their God-given passions as well. So I mentioned our I Am course that's happening on Tuesday nights that's been fantastic. We're led by some great table leaders, normal men and women just like all of us who've been on a similar journey. And they're able to share some of what God has done in their lives and what gives them the source of passion. And when I hear their stories, it creates a rise within me. I'm empowered because I see what God is doing in them and the passions that they have and the unique ways God has called them to. And so we've captured some of these stories of just normal folks like you and me uh, that we're going to share and see if, that doesn't, if there isn't a sense of passion that rises for you, like for me, when we see these stories. When I think about what fuels me, there are seasons that are heavy seasons, and I've even been in one of those, and 
the same thing that sometimes can feel so taxing, like, oh, I gotta go be with people. The truth is, once I get to that space and I'm there with them, life comes out of that because I really get to invest in the relationships. And if I really acknowledge what my purpose is, I can't fulfill what my calling is by myself. And so to fulfill the calling that I truly believe God's given me, I've gotta be around people, I've gotta be listening to their story, and I've gotta be dreaming with them, even in times where they may feel like they can't dream. I think the thing that drives me the most, and I really had a hard time kind of coming to terms with it, is I just, I have to go. I love exploring, I love adventures, I love movement, and sometimes I looked at that as a negative in myself, it's like, because I'm not always productive when I go, I just really like to go. And so I think one of the another big aha moments that came connecting my two words with my going is that if I wasn't on the go, if I wasn't in movement, if I didn't have all that, I wouldn't have the opportunities that come my way to live out my two words. So I think that was a real powerful, powerful moment. Whenever I set out with my career, I had a specific idea about where it would take me. And um, kind of following the general cultural norms. And what the process really took me through was saying, okay, it's okay to be different, and it's okay to, um, to do things differently. And that's actually what God wants. He's created us all with a, a unique sense of style and purpose. And um, I'm not... I'm an introvert. I'm not meant for large group settings. I'm not meant for um, being a you know um, hugely successful CEO of a company. Okay, that's not who I am as a person. And so, how can I use my own giftings to really work in my career? I think that through this process, looking at um, just different passions of mine, really um, just helped me come up with my core values. Um, so some of the things that fuel me are community. Um, my people are super important to me ever since I was little. I mean, some of the best friends I have, I've had since I was five. So it's funny how even as a kid, like I knew that that was really important to me um, and something that was worth me fighting for. Knowing that this is a value of mine really makes me fight for friendships um, more than I've had to in the past because it's just harder now. Um, but I know that that fuels me and that fills me up and that brings me closer to God ultimately. And so now um, just knowing that that's a passion of mine and that that's a value of mine, it just makes me fight for it even more. I, so simplifying situations, so I was, I realize now that I was made no matter where I'm at, I'll go in and try to make it simpler. Um, a good example of that I think is at work and um, I think of an assessment that I took said about me, um, Britain will keep you grounded in reality. <laughs> and um, I think that's the simplification thing. If I'm going into a meeting or we're talking about something at work, I will immediately go in, in my brain and think, how can we make this more simple, more clear, so people can understand and Jesus can be accessible. So gifting connects our lives to God's power, but it's passion that directs our life with God's precision. It's passion that's a conviction that becomes contagious, not in spite of, but because it withstands the test of pain.
And when our passion is contagious, it empowers the lives of others to fulfill their purpose as well. Did you have a sense of that passion rise even as you've heard these stories? Do you have people in your life who live with that sense of passion? What they have is accessible to you. What they have is accessible to you. I think of men and women like Lisa Zolke. Lisa's on staff around here. She does our communication stuff. But Lisa has an interest in running that she's connected with a passion to love young girls and to help direct them, to show them that they have so much to offer, that they could do and be anything they want to be and do. And so she serves and volunteers with Girls on the Run and takes her interest and connects it to a passion and helps them understand these fourth, fifth, sixth grade girls, their identity and purpose in Christ. I think of people like Forrest and Leslie Swyden. They own a series of Chick-fil-A's around town and they've taken their interest in chicken sandwiches and business development, and even mentoring. They've combined it with their passion to make a difference for the next generation of these mentees that they raise up and they equip and they empower and they send out. But what's more important than starting or continuing franchises is developing them as people with Christ-centered character. I had a chance to talk to Forrest and Leslie afterwards and like he just had tears in his eyes because it just fulfills his life's passion and calling. And he said, thank you so much, not for mentioning his name, but for connecting. Hey, what I do with my passions, it's rooted in them getting to know Jesus and what he does in their lives and them paying that forward. It's amazing. I think about people like Joe and Shelby Ratterman. Joe leads our high school ministry and they took last weekend uh, middle school and high school, our students took 175 kids, 40 leaders, mostly volunteers, took these kids out on retreat who had a fantastic time, great experience. Here's a picture of this wild group. They're making a difference in real time, in real ways in our community and beyond. And as an added, just incredible cherry on top, seven of these students made confessions of faith in Jesus Christ for the first time where they said yes. Yeah, we can thank God for that. These passions, uh, I find uh, synergy with that because I would articulate my passion is to hand off the faith to the next generation. That's what wakes me up in the morning. That's what keeps me awake at night. So I'll end as I begin. What are you passionate about? What drives you? What fuels you? And wherever you're at is okay. If you're just like, I don't know, that's okay. Let's take some steps to discover that. If you're like, I have some ideas, but it's still pretty fuzzy, that's all right. Let's take some steps to bring clarity. If you know what it is, but you've forgotten, that's okay. Just get back in. Go after the giant that the God has created you to go after. So if you would, if I, if I could have everyone stand, this won't be weird, um, but just stand if you would. And before we do our final song of worship, I'm just gonna ask a series of questions from the stage. And I'm gonna trust that the Spirit of God will use these to prompt your heart. And the hope is that as we read these questions, two or three or four things might pop 
that might be the seeds of some passion for you. Sound good? So first, ask, what am I interested in? What do I enjoy? What are my hobbies? Where do I spend my free time? Our interests may be a seedbed for that passion. Second, what am I excited about? What gives me energy? What do I look forward to doing? Those things that inspire excitement may be a seedbed for that God-inspired passion. Next question, what am I driven by? What must I do? What gets me up in the morning? Where and when do I feel most alive? If we can get some clarity there, we're starting to get some traction with our passion. Lastly, what am I burdened for? What keeps me up at night? What pain in the world do I sense God wants me to step into? Take a moment just in the quiet of your own heart, ask the Spirit of God to meet you where you are and raise up those passions. It's a journey, by the way. If you want some more time, we'll send this out in our journey devotional. We send out each week these questions. You can get pen and paper and take one more step on that clarity journey. God, will you speak individually and collectively to us? Lord, I and we wouldn't choose pain, but I'm thankful that pain can have a purpose. I pray that you'd meet each person wherever they're at, right where they're at, comfort them, encourage them, and help them take next steps. And Lord, I just pray that you would inspire passion individually and collectively within our community, that we would own who we are, that we would live that out, that we would articulate that that collectively we would make a difference as we gather and as we're part of a Heartland family, but that we would also make a difference, that you would speak to us, give us clarity about that passion and that purpose. Lord, I believe that you have given each of us individually the abilities to slay giants around us. You have always used people. Use us. And Lord, will you give a sense of a passion let us know what you're calling us individually and collectively to do so that we might know the giant you're asking us to slay. Will you do that in our time, in our day, through us? Here we are, Lord. Here we are. Send us. Send us. Send us. Send us.